Welcome to PeopleTech, the podcast of the HCM Technology Report. I'm Mark Pfeffer. Even before COVID-19, the world of work was becoming increasingly complex. There have been ongoing changes to technology, work environments, what employees expect, and what employers are prepared to give. To talk about all that, I'm joined today by Jeff Wald. He founded Work Market and sold it to ADP, and now is involved with four tech startups, Bento Engine, Independently, Heist, and Sonero. He's seen the world of work from all its angles, and today he's going to help us put its changes into perspective on this edition of People Tech. Hey, Jeff. Welcome to the show. So um, a couple of years ago, you published your book, uh, The End of Job. Mm-hmm. And yes. it struck me that you know your, your timing was great to publish that in 2020. Um, and a lot's changed by a lot's changed since then. So how's the book standing up given COVID and everything that's gone on in the last couple of years? Well, I'll tell you this. You know, Mark, the book was never designed to be prescriptive, right? Like, here's what's gonna happen. I mean, we do say that. We do go into it, both myself and the collaborators that that wrote segments, sections of the book uh, with me. Um, but it's more designed as a framework to think about the future of work. And I think it's held up incredibly well because that framework is always going to hold up. And that framework is simply, if we want to make predictions about the future of work, we have to make sure those predictions are rooted in the history of work, in the data in the world of work, and in how companies actually engage labor. Because way too often in our space, people make predictions that just don't have a foundation to them, right? Is it possible that all new jobs that are being created are on-demand jobs? Sure, it's possible. It's just, that's not how companies operate. They don't suddenly go, stop all hires, make every person a freelancer from now on. That's not how workforce management discussions begin. Is it possible that 50% of the labor force is going to be remote? post-pandemic, which I've heard many, many people predict. No, it's not possible because only 42% of the U.S. workforce can work remotely. And when I'm on panels and point those things out, people go, oh, I don't know. I didn't know that. To which I say, but shouldn't you know that? You're Mm -hmm. making a prediction about the future of work, but you're doing it outside of any constructive data. So look, our predictions were always going to hold up because they're rooted in history in data and how companies actually engage workers. Did, did we predict a pandemic? Of course not. But do we say in the book that labor force changes, data in the labor market change very slowly and very methodically throughout time? And so anybody that makes a huge prediction of, oh my God, this is going to double or this is going to change, it almost never happens, except during times of tremendous dislocation, a war, a pandemic or something like that. So that we did talk about, but God willing, we'll be through COVID soon enough. And you will see that most things, remote work being the huge exception to that, uh, will have reverted to mean. Well, so given that as as background, when you look back over the last two years, um, did the changes to the workplace surprise you or or the way business responded? surprise you? Surprise me, no. 
Um, here's what I was surprised about. I was surprised as to the unbelievably heroic work done by HR teams, done by um, the CISO's office, the corporate security office, by a host of other team members to move people to a remote work construct where possible. I really thought you'd be hearing all kinds of stories about security breaches and all kinds of nightmares above the mean of what we normally hear, because, you know, there's always a trickle of that news. Um, and the work done by your listeners and, and many others in uh, leadership positions uh, was well, that did surprise me, the speed to which people got things done. We'd always said that remote work was a better construct for the worker or to be more clear flexible work because remote work has a very specific definition and we can get into that in a second but flexible work as most things flexibility breeds benefits whether you're talking about you know our own bodies and flexibility or any flexibility in any system the more flexible the system is the better it is and so that certainly applies to the world of work if you're being flexible with your workforces and not demanding that they're there nine to five five days a week you're going to have a happier, healthier, more engaged, more productive workforce. That's been incredibly clear. And yet, not many companies embraced it because of a very antiquated mindset of, well, I believe productivity equals presence. I think magic happens when everyone's in the office, so I want everyone there. And policies, procedures, and infrastructure that are necessary to enable remote work. It's one thing to say, no problem, we can have people work remotely or flexibly, but it's another to make sure they can access all of your systems from outside your four walls. Because if you let me work remotely, but you don't give me access to the GitHub repository, then are you really enabling me to work remotely? No. If you say I can work remotely, but you don't have a policy that every meeting has a telepresence or a Zoom or whatever default such that it doesn't slip through the cracks when I try to be like, well, I wanted to attend the three o'clock meeting, but there was no dial in. There was no anything. It just assumed everyone was in the office. If you don't have those policies and procedures and infrastructure, you're not enabling remote work. So those two impediments, which were structural impediments, both got swept away in March of 2020. And so because of that, you will have a structural change and a substantive change to the amount of people working remotely and flexibly. You know, I'm sure you've you've heard these these numbers before, but I've seen a number of studies that have said that executives tend to think everybody needs to be in the office, but then there's other numbers that say workers are more productive when they're working at home. How do they reconcile that? I mean, it's tough. I, I will say this. First thing I'll say, Mark, is as with. And this is one of the big takeaways when I give speeches on the future of work is you we got to be very careful about painting with a broad brush, right? Are most workers productive in a remote context? The answer to that question is yes, right? On average, yes. Does that mean that your workforce is more productive? Not necessarily. That your those job functions are more productive? Not necessarily, right? So we need to be thinking about it in a very granular way as decision makers within companies, just because the overarching data tells us this doesn't mean it applies to your company, your industry, your job functions. Uh, at the height of the pandemic, a few companies that I advise, one, a very large global bank, felt at best they had 84% productivity, at best. And they were desperate to get back to the office. And 
you know, if I said their name, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's one of the companies pounding the table to tell everyone to get back in the office. And I had an accounting firm that felt half of their workforce, certain functions were more productive, certain functions about as productive. And so they were super psyched to let these people continue to work and they didn't know what they were going to do with this other group. And I had another client that uh, felt don't need offices anymore. We're going to shut all these things down. Everyone can be remote. And they, they walk that back, right? They do have offices. The offices just take a different construct. So first thing, you know, we can't paint with that broad brush because it's very, very difficult. Am I surprised that we still have managers that have an antiquated mindset? Not at all. I mean, how do you square that circle? I will tell you, having personally had this conversation, and I will certainly leave names out of it, where ADP, when they acquired work market, told me, you've got a bunch of remote workers. You need to get them to move to a location where you were. There's an office. They have to go to an office. And I said, why? They said, well, that's our policy. You, they have to go to an office. I was like, I, I don't understand your policy. And it really wasn't a debate. Mm -hmm. And so being an entrepreneur and not really that much of a rule follower, I just did what I normally do. I said, no problem. I'm going to be, I'm going to get on that. And then six months later, they were like, wait a minute, do you still have remote employees? I was like, oh, my, did you want me to not have them? Is that, did we say that? I forgot. That's, that's on me. That's my bad. And then they never brought it up again. And those people are still unbelievably productive members of the team. And the mindset at ADP has massively changed. I mean, I give ADP a huge amount of credit for everything that they've done with their teams. I had the pleasure of being a part of that uh, in the beginning of the pandemic before I left. But what an amazing company and incredibly well-led uh, and very enlightened policies as they adjusted to a new reality. But were they rooted in a antiquated mindset before the pandemic? Sure, almost everybody was. And it took the pandemic for people to actually see, wow, I get why some of these innovative young tech companies do it this way. I get this whole distributed team things. People needed to see it themselves. And I don't blame anybody for that. Uh, but companies that still think that way, like some big banks and other things, I, I do fail to understand it now, I should say. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. Well, do you think this, this whole thing, um, you know, working from home or hybrid work, uh, is it a technology thing or is it really a change in work thing? So as with all things, it's a little bit of both, a little from column A, a little from column B. You know, the technology enabled it. When we look at the history, so surprising nobody, I'm going to always go back to what is the history of these different things. The history of remote work was in 2010, about 1% of the workforce worked remotely. And we, we only have data on remote work. We don't have a lot of data on flexible work because with remote work, you are putting into your payroll forms what your office location is because we as a payroll provider or ADP as a payroll provider has to know that because of tax nexus, mm -hmm. right? If you are commuting into New York City, I need to know that because now you're going to pay some New York City taxes. 
if you work out of your home in Connecticut and you never come to the office in New York, then your home office is Connecticut. And that may have different implications because then maybe your company has Nexus in Connecticut because they have employees there, leaving all that aside. Meaning we have data if you very rarely, less than 50% of the time, technically go into that office. If you go in 60% of the time, three days a week, we have no data on you, right? Hmm. We don't know whether or not you're going in three days a week, four days a week, five days a week, six days a week. Like we just don't know. We only know what you're filling into your tax forms. So we have very good data that we here being those of us that study labor statistics, uh, you know, for a living or for, for their own amusement. Um, so we know that in 2010, about 1% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. And then it really, really grew. And it grew to about 3% of the U.S. workforce pre-pandemic. And what enabled that growth was the technological infrastructure, right? Like suddenly I could zoom into those meetings. I didn't need a whole telepresence room for $500,000 from Cisco. I could just use a WebEx or use Zoom or use one of the other platforms, those types of things and GitHub and Jira and Asana, uh, you know, and all these other tools that helped me see exactly what jobs I needed to be getting done, the disaggregation of work, which we talk about a lot, those things enabled remote work to be able to happen. Not the process of the disaggregation of work, but the tools that enabled it, <laughs> right? That allowed me to now work from wherever. In the book, I talk about the evolution of the nine to five, one office, one manager job to the fluid team-based work from anywhere, always on job. And a big part of that is this disaggregation of work and a big part of that are the tools that enabled it. And so we entered the pandemic with the idea that remote work will continue its slow and steady growth because of those two impediments we talked about earlier that antiquated mindset and the policies and procedures and infrastructure needed to really supercharge it. And I didn't anticipate those things happening, right? No big change happens in the labor markets outside of some massive exogenous event. And then COVID comes and those two things change. And we see this huge change, much like I always say, you won't see any massive change in the on-demand labor forces unless there is comprehensive regulatory reform. If you saw that comprehensive regulatory reform, the number of freelancers and on-demand workers would skyrocket. Outside of it, you will continue to see the slow and steady growth we've seen over the last 10 years. Putting aside the whole issue of uh, where people are working and, and the technology they're using, it feels like there has been changes just to the way people get work done. Mm -hmm. And the way they sort of construct their day. Do you think that's true? And, in, in, you know, what do you think is going on out there? Well, I'll say this. It's very difficult to know what's going on out there. You know, I like to look at historic perspectives. And we have no historical precedent for a lot of things going on in the world today. But let's just stick with COVID as the main driver from a work standpoint. The last historical perspective we have is from 1918 through 1920. And there isn't a whole lot of data that we have to look at about how the workforce companies and work was evolving and changing there. And so I am super wary of making too many predictions 
given that the data sets, right, in March of 2020, March, uh, April, May, June, the workforce massively contracted, right? We lost 20, 25 million jobs. And then a huge number of them came back, but not in certain industries and not in certain places. And then COVID said, there's too much noise in the data is basically what I'm saying. And so when people say to me, where do we think it's all going to shake out? I'll say, I need, you know, three or four quarters of stability to understand where the data patterns stayed out. And then I'll tell you, it's one of my favorite quotes from uh, one of the professors at business school who was a business historian. And he would always say, well, how's this going to turn out? And he'd look around the class and he'd go, I'm a business historian. Ask me in five years and I'll tell you. I, you know, we, we just don't know how a lot of things are. We have some ideas, but there's just too much noise in the data right now. Well, does the data or just your observations give you any hint about how employers are doing with all this? Yeah, they, they did a pretty good job of pivoting during during COVID. Um, but some of these changes seem like they're going to stick around. And, you know, are employers ready? I think employers are ready. I think some employers are going to do better than others. I look to our friends at ADP who are doing a phenomenal job at this. And I think of other people that I'm close with that are doing a terrible job at this. Uh, you know, there are so many factors in this, Mark, around this kind of war for talent. And when the labor markets are as tight as the labor markets are now, and we can talk about why that is, by the way, and that's an immigration and retiree issue mostly because the labor force is smaller today than it was before COVID. Um, we're still about 2 million workers short in the United States. And so when you have this situation where you have 11 million job openings, and everybody knows these statistics, as a company, to have policies that are not worker friendly, you simply are going to attract not that many workers. It's not really some huge thing, right? That, that That's not some big leap of logic. If you're not the kind of place people want to work and people have a choice, then they're not going to work there. Now, when the labor markets are not tight, you can make the statement, well, if they want a job, then they have to do what we say. Great. That can work very well, depending on the state of the labor markets. The state of the labor markets right now are very tight, and I don't see them easing anytime soon. So are companies going to be fine if companies adjusted? For the most part, yes. But as with all things, there are winners and there are losers. And the losers are companies that stick to very rigid policies and aren't listening to what their workers want to an extent, right? It's not, you can't let, you know, the inmates run the asylum here, right? Like managers still have to do what is best for the company. You can't just say, oh, whatever you guys want, whatever you want. Of course not. But some companies are doing great and will continue to be employers of choice and some companies are not. Mm -hmm. But, 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 if, you know, we have to make predictions and many times we do have to make predictions, I would simply say that we are starting to see the data shake out such that about 8% of the US workforce will be working in a remote context. Again, remote context means less than 50% of the time you're in that office. So it could just be two days a week, then you're a remote worker if you go in two days a week. Um, and we think about another 24, 25% of workers will be flexible. Meaning again, three, three days a week or more in that office. And so that really only leaves, because again, Remember, 42% is the max 
in the U.S. workforce that can work remotely because people that are in manufacturing and in logistics and extraction industries and in many services can't work remotely, construction, whatever. Um, that means that you have very few, so it's called a total of 33%. You've got about 9% of your workforce that is staying in this nine to five kind of one office, five days a week job. That's a big shift, man. That is a big, big shift. And if you are one of the employers that insists upon that, then just recognize that you only have access to 9% of the workforce now. Before you had access to 42%, and obviously people can move from extraction industries into office work, whatever. But you, you, know, you know what I'm saying here. Um, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to limit the pool of eligibles? So... We will see how all this plays out, but that is where the data indicates uh, we will shake out. And for my last question, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, technology obviously plays a, a big part in HR and workforce issues nowadays. And the the vendors that, that I know are always being pretty aggressive in trying to develop you know, new products and new approaches. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any risk or do you see any signs? I guess is a better way to put it. Do you any see do you see any signs of the technology producers getting so far ahead of the market that you have something like Amazon tried for a while where they had a system that automatically hired, managed, and fired people without any human touch? Do you, do you think we're gonna get into that kind of position more? Do I think we will? The answer is there'll certainly be examples. You know, we can talk through a number of examples where people think just because the technology exists, X, Y, or Z is going to happen. And I talk about this a lot, Mark, in regards to people saying, oh, you know, the ATM exists. All bank tellers are going to be out of work, to which I say that almost never happens. Almost never. And I spent a lot of time in the book talking about this and a lot of times in my speeches talking about this. The changes that technology can wrought are also often incredibly misunderstood and take a lot longer to develop. So, look, has the technology existed to displace almost every waiter and waitress in the world? Yeah, that text existed for some time. I don't need a human to hand me a piece of paper with the items that are available for me to eat. I don't need to communicate that with them verbally and have them write down on another piece of paper what it is I want and bring it in. I can do that on my phone, right? Like I don't need that to happen, but it hasn't happened. We have not seen in mass the displacement of that job category because people just don't want it. People don't want that experience in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. If I want to do that, I just order food at home. I want to go into the restaurant. I want to hear from the waiter and rich and what their opinion, blah, 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 blah. So just because a vendor builds some new tech doesn't mean that people need it. And the tech sector often gets ahead of itself. But I will say this, the place where the tech sector seems to me to have gotten the most ahead of itself is not on feature sets. It's not on the use of AI. It's not on a host of other technological things. It's from a corporate finance standpoint. The different HR tech startups, as companies in a lot of sectors saw, there was just a huge bidding up because of where the venture capital markets were, where the capital markets were. And I will tell you a story about a startup that I am an angel investor in. 
that uh, I'm an advisor to, and I help them negotiate a deal with uh, a large HCM where the HCM was going to help distribute their products. And the head of corp dev of that HCM called me up and he said, hey, should we just buy them? You know, we just, you introduced us. We love it. We signed a big deal with them. We're going to distribute their products. Should we just buy them? I was like, should you buy them? Absolutely. Do you know what their last valuation was? He said, well, no. And I was like, well, you know, we all have an NDA in place. So I will tell you that company got valued at $650 million. $650 million. Their revenue at the time was like eight. <laughs> eight million dollars. And this head of corp dev, we were sitting there, you know, and I could hear him spit his coffee out when I said the 650 number. He's like, what? I was like, yeah, I know. He goes, I can't spend 650. I said, oh, no, you can't buy them for 650. That's what the last valuation was. You got to put a premium on that, man. You got to buy them for like 800. And he's like, no, obviously I would never do that. He goes, I'd buy them for 100 right now. And the thing is, Mark, is that for 100, each of the founders would have made 20, 30 million bucks. Each of the investors all would have 10X'd our money. And it would have been a great outcome. And now that company's in a box because there are very limited exit opportunities for them. None of the HCM platforms are going to buy them because they're way too expensive. Or they're going to have to have some massive down round where the early investors and the founders and everyone is going to get crushed. Uh, and so that's the trouble I see in the HR tech ecosystem is this construct of what every corp dev team thinks through is, should I buy or should I build? And, you know, ADP certainly had that thought process on work market. And there were a number of people on the ADP side that very much believed in the build side. And they were very vocal with me after they bought. They're like, I think we should have just built it. I'm like, okay, why are you telling me this? You already bought it. Why are you being a jerk? Um, but anyway, they have this construct of buy versus build. And what has happened in the HCM world is that the buy has gotten more and more and more expensive as these HCM players and startups are raising money at ridiculous valuations, which by the way, have persisted, even though a lot of valuations have come down. You see like Hi Bob and a few others have continued to raise money at very, very high valuations, which I don't understand. But what people don't seem to understand is that the HCM players, their capacity to build or their cost to build has gone down and down and down. Let me tell you something, 10 years ago, I think ADP really had to buy a lot of technology. Now, using ADP as a proxy for the other HCM players, they've got an amazing technology team and they can build great stuff. Do they build it as fast as a startup? No. Do they build it? No. No. But can they build cool stuff now very effectively? Absolutely. 10 years ago, probably not. But today, ADP is just a full-on tech firm. And so... The cost to buy has gone up. The cost to build has gone down. I think that's going to leave a lot of HR tech platforms stranded. And I think that's the problem that the HR tech ecosystem is going to have. Well, Jeff, okay. thanks for taking the time and visiting today. Anytime and every time. Always a pleasure. My guest today has been Jeff Wall an entrepreneur, executive, and author. And this has been People Tech, the podcast of the HCM Technology Report. We're a publication of Recruiting Daily. We're also a part of Evergreen Podcasts. To see all of their programs, visit www.
www.evergreenpodcasts.com. And to keep up with HR technology, visit the HCM Technology Report every day. We're the most trusted source of news in the HR tech industry. Find us at www.hcmtechnologyreport.com. I'm Mark Fiffer. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.